So let's just kind of start by, by answering what probably is one of the more obvious questions uh, up front. What in the world does ethos mean, right? This is the series we're going to be in uh, really all the way up until Easter. What does ethos mean? What does that word mean? If you look it up in the dictionary, here's what you'll find. Ethos is the spirit, it's the character, it's the morality, it's the nature, the dispositions or the customs of a, of a people or tribe or a culture, right? That's the, the dictionary's definition. I tend to be a little more visual, so I think of it like this. And ethos is kind of like an undercurrent, right? It's something that is felt before it's seen, right? If you've ever stepped out, you know, into the ocean or into a, a river, you, you know that sometimes on the surface the water looks really calm, but you step out into that, into that water and you can feel that, that current. Even though you can't see it, you can feel the way that it's, that it's pulling, the direction that it's going, right? So that's another way of thinking about an ethos within a people group is it's like the cultural undercurrent, that people would experience, they would feel it before they see it, right? Or, or maybe it's this, it's an essence, right? And what an essence is, what, what an essence is, it, it comes from what is determined by the community or by the tribe to be essential for life, right? That is ultimately what our essence is. Our essence comes from what we determine and deem to be essential for our lives and, and how we're supposed to live our lives. So an ethos is more than just like a catchy brand slogan, right? It's more than that. It's, an ethos is more than just a tagline. It's more than, than just a motto. An ethos points to, the, to what's really at the heart of every person in a tribe or a community. For example, the, the U.S. Armed Forces, there's a warrior ethos that they all share. Now, they have individual ones as well, but there's a your ethos that they all share. And it says this, I will place the mission first. I will never accept defeat. I will never quit. I will never leave a fallen comrade behind, right? That is the warrior ethos that is shared by the United States military. They have individual ones depending on which branch, but that's kind of the overriding ethos, right? It's what points to, right? It's not an option. It's not an option for them Ask anyone that is served in, in, in the military, right? This ethos is trained and drilled into them, right? In basic training. And so an ethos doesn't just point to what we do. An ethos points to the kind of people we are and because of that can do what we do, right? That's what an ethos is. That kind of goes back to what we talked about in our last series. An ethos, right? It points to, it points to who we are. And because we are who we are, we're able to do the things that we can do. So an ethos is what points to things like codes of conduct, right? An ethos points to like what we generally accept to be right or wrong, what's acceptable or unacceptable behavior, right? An ethos will help us determine kind of what's okay or not okay. An ethos is what drives what we consider to be virtues, Right? Virtues are the kinds of things like that. That's, that's who we want to strive to become. Right? We want to strive to become those kind of virtues. We want to embody those virtues. And ethos helps us identify things like vices. Right? Vices would be the things that, like that's who or what I strive to avoid. Right? I want to avoid vices and I want to lean into virtues. But here's the deal. And all my kind of prep and study for this, what I learned is this. Our ethos must first get applied inwardly. It has to be activated in our lives personally. And then from there, it's expressed outwardly by that collective community that shares that ethos. And only then is that ethos kind of experienced, which we would say is felt, and witnessed, which is seen, by those within the tribe and those outside of it. Okay, so if you got your Bibles uh, in front of you or you got your Bible app with you, uh, turn, open up to Acts chapter 2. We're going to live in Acts chapter 2 a little bit. We're picking up really from where Casey left off uh, last week in Acts chapter 2. It will also be on the screen here in front of you. So uh, here's what it says. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42, kind of a famous set of verses. This, just so you get some context, comes uh, on the heels of this thing called Pentecost, which was a Jewish pilgrim festival. So where people, uh, Jews from all over the world came into Jerusalem, the population of Jerusalem would swell sometimes 10, 20 fold what it normally was because these people came from all over, uh, all over the world, right, for this festival of Pentecost. Well, what happens at Pentecost, right, is kind of what Mark referred to is, you know, the Holy Spirit begins to move in to the disciples and through the disciples. People come to check out what that is at nine o'clock in the morning. Peter stands up and gives a sermon and, and a church 
the church that believes in and follows Jesus goes from about 120 people hiding out in an upper room to 3,000 in a morning, right? You want to talk about like massive church growth, right? That like from about 120 folks to thousands of people who want to get baptized, who want to be a part of, of this thing. So this kind of comes on the heels of that, right? This is kind of the outpouring of this moment where thousands of people believe in Jesus and are baptized into this kind of community and family of, of people that believe and follow Jesus. And, and here's kind of the outcome of that. It says this, starting in verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe, it says, came upon every soul, and many signs were, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So just pause right here. Go back real quick. There we go. One more. Oh, that's fine. We'll leave it there. Great. Um, so you look at this and, and kind of, you can see the ethos begin to form, right? I will be devoted to the apostles' teaching. I will be devoted to fellowship. I will be devoted to the breaking of bread. I will be devoted to prayer. You can see in these first few verses that there's this ethos that's now being applied inwardly and is being activated personally by all the individuals in that community, in that tribe of the followers of Jesus. And it goes on. It says, and all who believed were together. Right? So now you see this ethos starts to get outwardly expressed by this community. So they were together. We're starting to see things expressed outward. It's not just an inward thing. You're starting to see their lives begin to shift. The way they live their lives begin to shift. It says that they were all together and they had all things in common. That didn't mean that they were all alike. It meant that they held everything that they had in common. They shared it all. Nothing was mine and that's yours. It was this is ours. We hold this in common. The thing that matters the most, which is our belief and trust and our faith in Jesus, that's what we have in common, and that is enough for us, right? And it says they were selling their possessions and their belongings, and they were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, again, look at this ethos. Now, it starts to get, it starts to work its way out into the community, right? Because of this ethos, because of my devotion to, to the apostles' teachings, which, by the way, they were teaching Jesus, because of my devotion to the apostles' teaching, because of my devotion to, to fellowship, because of my devotion to breaking the bread uh, together, to prayer, because of all of that, because that is my ethos, I will hold on to nothing and I will give everything I have to make sure that no one is in need, right? So now that ethos, which started on the inside, worked its way to the outside, is now being felt and experienced by everyone within the tribe. And it goes on, it says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. All the people means the people that, that were outside of that community. People that might have believed things that were different than them. People that, that didn't decide to give their lives to Jesus, but were still kind of going through life as they needed to go through life, right? It was everyone outside of the community. Everyone outside of that community of Jesus followers looked at the community of Jesus followers because of how they, how they applied and activated that ethos internally, how they began to live that out externally, how they were caring for each other. Everyone around them looked at them with favor. And it says, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. More people came to know Jesus. Why? Because of the ethos of the community, the first community, the first tribe of Jesus' followers. And this is the result of what we're going to be calling for the next month or so, a warrior disciple ethos, right? It's different. It's different than the kind of ethos we have when it comes to church or when it comes to studying the Bible or it comes to our relationship with Jesus, right? This is different. This was different and it had a different effect. And that's what we're going to be talking about here as we kind of progress through the next few weeks. But here, here's something, here's an important piece that I need us to kind of know and understand when it comes to all this. And here you go, ready? We're not born with an ethos, right? You don't pop out with like a set of built-in guidelines and like rules and, and regulations and, and codes of conduct. Like you don't, you don't, you're not born understanding or knowing right from wrong, right? The same thing is true with this Acts 2 community. So you look at this and go, man, that's like an exemplary church. They're incredible. I don't know that we can, can hang with them. 
here's the deal. Prior to what we read in Acts chapter 2, really, and when I say prior to this, I mean like 24 hours prior. Like 24 to 48 hours before Acts chapter 2 happens, this community, this tribe, they were nothing like that. They were nothing like that. We're actually going to talk more about that here in just a second. But, but, but what I need us to know and understand is that an ethos is not something that necessarily comes natural to us. How do I know this? I have kids. Right? I was thinking about, like, I was thinking about a story to tell that, that wouldn't embarrass them too much, right? And I'm going to leave Jack. He's off the hook this time. But, but a while back, like Christy and I, like I was in student ministry, and one of the things that we wanted to do is we wanted to open up our home, we wanted to leverage our house to be able to do ministry. So we invited our entire student ministry to our house, right, to, to have like a, a fall fest. And so, you know, we're going to cook out, we're going to grill out, we're going to watch a movie, we're going to play cornuts, all that kind of stuff. So we've got, a, a, you know, a handful, when I say a handful, like I mean a couple hundred um, high school students show up at our house. And everybody's having a blast. They're sitting in the yard, they're throwing football, it's great. Cash, at that time, is about three years old. He's just amongst them right? Because if you've never met Cash, you know that kid has never met a stranger in his life, and he is about as social as they get, and he is an enthusiast. Cash does everything at a thousand miles an hour, right, at all times. So Cash is, is out kind of hanging out amongst these kids, and he's like the kind of the ministry mascot of that moment. And, and something happened. Like, I turned around to help someone with, with, who was working the grill, and I just heard like all of these girls kind of screaming, and laughing. So I knew like nothing was on fire, but it was like this, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, and like laughing. And, they, and I turned around and Cash in front of, I don't know, a handful of 20 or so high school girls in the front yard just dropped his pants and just started to pee in the front yard. I mean, you know, like little, you know, well, you've seen like little boy, like when they put all the, it's not, it's not just like they go all the way down, right? And the shirt comes all the way up and you gotta like arch your back a little bit, right? Like, ta-da, right? And, and, you know, it's one of those, like, oh, no. Like, we're, you know, it's like you can't, like, run and pick him up, right, because he'll get all over you, right? So you just got to let him finish. And then at that point, we can start, like, having the conversations of, like, hey, buddy, like, um, we don't do that. That's not acceptable behavior, right? Like, and so if, you know, if, you, if you've got kids, you know that there have been times, right, parents, how many, how many times have we said, like, we don't say that. You know, that's not something that we do. That kind of behavior is not appropriate. That's not okay. That's not how we behave. I mean, probably, if, you, if you're, again, your kids are like ours, uh, probably a handful of times a day, right? But, but um, our ethos is something that is both taught and caught, our ethos is taught and it's caught. It's consistently being reshaped and reformed as we go through our lives. There's a, there's a famous quote a few years back that said this, who we are in any given moment is usually a composite of the five or so people you spend the most time with. So kind of your personality, your traits, like your, the way you express those things, that at any given moment is usually a composite of the five people you spend the most time with. We used to say this in student ministry like this, show me your friends and I'll show you your future, Right? That's kind of how that worked, and that still applies to us today, right? So recent studies, though, I read a study this week that, that showed that, that due to the impact of social media on our everyday lives, we are now the composite of way more than five people. In fact, in some cases, it, it's infinite. You can't even begin to count. The study that I read said, said this. For, for many of us, our ethos is being formed and influenced by people we don't know and people that don't know us, people that we haven't met, and will never meet. Yet, we've handed them the keys to our lives. See, the, the ethos that, that we live and operate our lives in is being handed over to things like algorithms and media platforms. And here's the thing, you may think, well, it doesn't have any influence on my life. That's exactly what they want you to think, right? That They are, right? They, they do. Our lives are being formed, right? The driving force of our lives, who we are and what we do, is being shaped and is being formed by the things that we allow to influence us. But there's still hope. 
right? So if your personal life ethos and however it's been formed and shaped has you stuck right now in a, in a cycle of, of painful situations or heartache or worry or loneliness, if it's just one of those things where you feel like, I just, no matter what I do, I cannot get out of this hole, this pit, this mess, here's the deal. It can be reshaped. It can be reformed. It can be exchanged for a new one. Your life ethos can be exchanged for a new one. The flip side of that is also true. You may have this kind of ethos in your life that's been guiding your life for a while and it's led you to a place that feels safe, that feels satisfying, that feels peaceful. But here's the deal. It can still get better. It can get better. And what we see in Acts chapter 2 is proof, right, that the ethos that drives our lives can get better. It can change. It can shift away from old patterns and old habits into new ones. And so what I want to do is just kind of rewind back about a month or so from this moment in Acts 2. The same group of disciples that helped facilitate and form this first church in Acts, where thousands of people are, are baptized, you know, mid-morning in Jerusalem and join the church. Those disciples, the disciples of Jesus that helped facilitate and form that church, on the night that Jesus was arrested, a little over a month prior to this, he asks that same group to stay awake, to stay awake and pray with him while he prays. If you want to read where that is, it's in John 16 and 17. Jesus asks them to stay awake while he prays, and they all fall asleep. They can't, they, they can't hang. They ask you to do one thing. Stay awake. Stay awake with me. Pray with me. They all fall asleep. When Jesus gets betrayed, he's betrayed by Judas, who was one of his disciples. I mean, when, the, when kind of the, 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 the crew comes around the corner to, to arrest Jesus, Judas is leading the charge, right? One of Jesus' own disciples was one of the guys, was the guy that betrayed him. Peter, who was the most outspoken and, and bold disciple, right? The one that Jesus looked at him and said, you're going to help start and lead the church, who promised Jesus time after time after time, no matter what, Jesus, I will never leave your side. When Jesus gets arrested, not only does Peter bolt for the door, but he also denies ever having known Jesus three different times. Like in one breath, he's going, I will never, I will never leave you. I will never give up on you. And then things get difficult and they go, hey, don't you know Jesus? I don't, I don't know. I've never met him. I've never seen him. You got the wrong guy. Three different times. The rest of Jesus' disciples and the followers of Jesus, in this time, right, where Jesus was arrested and being tried and being executed, they run and they hide out in the upper room of a house and they lock the doors and they shut the blinds and they hope that no one finds them. The ethos at the, for the, for the, of the disciples uh, a month prior to this moment in Acts 2 would have sounded like this. I will run and hide when things get difficult or scary. I will quit and I will give up early and often. And I will look to save myself alone regardless of what happens to anybody else. I mean, that's what we see. We know that that's what was happening in them because it comes out of them, right? It gets expressed outwardly and not just individually. The whole community bolts. They run and hide. And so here's my question. What changed? What, what changed? What happened that took this crew from hiding out, running away, quitting, bailing, trying to save their own skins to teaching and preaching about Jesus out in the open, in the same city where Jesus was tried and betrayed and arrested and executed just a handful of days prior. What, what changed? What changed that caused them to now be devoted to leading others in faith? What changed to now cause them to be devoted to fellowship and prayer and, and signs and wonders and, and on down the line? And it gets even wilder if you read through Acts See, the book of Acts covers 35 years of church history, right? It's the first 35 years of the church that, that was built around and built on our belief and our faith in Jesus. And if you get into to, to what these, these apostles, they do, normal people just like us, we're talking about former fishermen, sailors, finance guys. I mean, one of Jesus' disciples was like, was like wanted because he was known for being a part of a group that were domestic terrorists, if you read through Acts, you see this in chapter 4, the same religious court 
the same religious court, the same high priest, a guy named Caiaphas, that that convicted and handed Jesus over to the Romans to be executed, that same court, that same high priest, they arrest Peter and John after they had just healed the guy outside of the temple. They arrest Peter and John, Jesus' disciples, and, and they demand, they bring them in front of the court, the same court that tried and convicted Jesus, and they demand that they stop preaching and teaching about Jesus. You know what we did to him, right? You saw what we did to him? Don't test us. Stop preaching about Jesus. Stop teaching about Jesus. Stop sharing the gospel. Stop healing people. If we do that to Jesus, what do you think we'll do to you? And Peter and John, who not that long ago, when things got difficult, they were hiding and they were denying that they ever knew Jesus. They hear the order from that court to stop preaching about Jesus, to stop teaching about Jesus, to stop leading others into a relationship with Jesus. And Peter, who's the former coward, his response is this, respectfully, no. And he's like, I, I said respectfully, right? Like, no. Here's what he says. He says, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or him? You be the judge of that one. As for us, we cannot help, meaning we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Think about that. You be the judge. Who, do we, who are we supposed to listen to? God or you? We won't stop. An ethos of fear and self-preservation and doubt and worry and insecurity and selfishness has clearly been replaced with an ethos of courage and bravery and integrity and honor and selflessness and boldness. This kind of expression of that ethos of I will run and hide and quit and give up at the first sign of trouble is now I will preach Jesus and I will make disciples and I will not stop no matter what. What changed? What happened? What happened to bring about that kind of shift in really just a little over a month in their ethos? Here's your answer. After nailing Jesus to a cross and burying him in a tomb and sealing the tomb and chaining it shut, Jesus walked out alive. And that changed everything. You want to know what changed? That. Everything that Jesus said was true. All of his teaching about the with God life and eternal life that doesn't start after you die, but a life that's rooted in the kingdom of heaven, a life that that has the essence and undercurrent of eternity starts now. That with God life, everything Jesus said about that was true. It was real. So prior to Jesus' resurrection, the disciples' ethos was still under the influence and strongholds of fear and doubt and insecurity. But after Jesus' resurrection, everything changed. Their ethos changed because of Jesus. And they became warrior disciples. We will not stop. We will be ever onward, ever forward, no matter what. This week I read three books. None of them had pictures, right? Stephen Pressfield, um, who has written historical fiction and historical nonfiction, he wrote the book called The Gates of Fire, which is about the Spartans in Thermopylae. It's what the movie 300 is based on. That's a non, that's historical, that's historical fiction. His historical nonfiction book is called The Warrior Ethos, and it's all about the culture of Sparta. And in his book, he says this: every warrior ethos proceeds from this. Courage, selflessness, love, and loyalty to one's comrades. Patience, self-command, and the will to endure adversity. He says, at a deeper level, the warrior ethos recognizes that each of us has enemies inside themselves, like envy, greed, laziness, selfishness, the capacity to lie and cheat and do harm to others. And he says this, the, the tenets of a warrior ethos directed inward inspire us to contend against and defeat the enemies within our own hearts. And church, that's what this entire series is going to be about. That over the next 
month and a half, we're going to identify the enemies in our hearts, and then we are going to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, go to war against them. To tear down the strongholds that they've built in our lives so that we, collectively, as a tribe, can break through, break out, and break free. And into full and total discipleship to Jesus. That's what this series is about. And I'm telling you, I, I sent, a, I sent a, a quick video out to the church uh, on Thursday or Friday. My day's all mixed together, right? And, and I said this, like, this series has the potential to reshape your life. And I know my wife was like, you've said that before. And I'm like, yeah, and it worked, right? About this time last year, we started a series that was predominantly aimed at the men in the room, even though everybody was in the room, right? And I think a lot of us could say, like, yeah, you know what, Brad, the last time you said this, we talked about what our roles are and how we, how we work together and what it means for men to step into the roles that God designed them to step into. And I think a lot of people would say, yeah, our marriages look different now. Our lives look a little bit different now than they used to. There's something to aim for. There's something to shoot for. I kid you not when I say I, have, I really believe that this series has the potential to change and reshape your lives, your marriages, the way you parent. It has the potential to reshape our church and how our church functions. And if you play it out over the next several days, weeks, months, years, it has the potential to impact this entire community, J-Town, Middletown, wherever you live. The cool thing about discipleship and disciple making is it can happen anywhere at any time. It's lightweight and low maintenance. It can go anywhere. It doesn't have to live at an address. But this can reshape everything. Imagine breaking free from the things in your life that you said, I don't know that this will ever change. I don't know that this will ever be different. This, this ghost, this demon, whatever it is, this weight, this burden, just has its claws into me, and I don't know that it'll ever change. See, Jesus had a really intentional and strategic way of getting at the strongholds in our lives. And I'll be honest with you, prior to kind of studying and preparing for this series, I never really saw it like this. I never saw some of Jesus' teachings the way that I'm seeing them now. But now, now that I can, I'll be honest, it's rocking my world, right? Now, before we do kind of like the big reveal right, in terms of like how Jesus helps us go to war with the enemies in our hearts and their, their strongholds, a answer these questions in your head, not out loud, okay, for all of us in the room, like I talked about, like they're the ones of us that no matter if I say it's rhetorical, you still answer, me too, right, answer these in your head, not out loud, that's your, that's your instruction. What's one thing in your life that tends to Reinforce the strongholds of stress and doubt and insecurity and worry in your life and in the lives of your friends and family. Think about that. What often feeds and fuels the strongholds of fear and anger and envy and resentment that ultimately cause conflict and tension in our marriages, in our families, and in our friendships? Think about right now, just think about some of the problems, maybe and issues that you're facing in your life right now. What's the thing that, if, that you believe if you had more of it or some of it, at best it could remove the strongholds of fear, stress, doubt, worry, anger, resentment, all those things. It could remove those strongholds in your life and fix the problems and issues that you face or at the very least would make them easier to ignore or pretend that they don't exist. What's that thing? What is typically the thing that we look to and turn to and believe it has the means to provide and is the reason that we do or do not have safety, security, status, and influence. If we had more of it, we'd have more of that. But we don't, so we don't. What is, what can become the object we attach the purpose and our meaning, the meaning in our lives to? Now, I'm going to ask you to answer out loud. We'll see if we all get it right, okay? You've thought about this. Ready? One, two, three. Money. Good job. Good job. You did it. You got it. Right? And here, here's the deal. Now, I know you look at this and go, ah, here we go again. Right? The other question I could have asked is this. What is the one thing you hate the most that we talk about at church? You would have been like, money. Right? That's it. Right? So here's the thing. If, if, you, if all you think, right, right now, if all you hear is, well, here comes another money series. They're going to talk about money. 
We're going to talk about money. They're going to talk about what we have, what we don't have, what we're supposed to do with it. Here's, if all you hear today or the next month and a half, if all you hear is money, about money, 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 I'm just telling you this, you're missing it. You're missing it. You're missing what we're really talking about. And here's something. I, I learned this this week in, in one of the books I read. In the Bible, there are 500 verses. There are 500 verses on faith. 500 verses in the Bible talk about faith, what it means to have faith, what faith is, what faithfulness looks like. There are also about 500 or so verses on prayer, what it means to pray, how we pray, what prayer does. We talked about that in our last series. So, again, if you do math, that's 1,000 verses, right? A little over 1,000 verses combined in the Bible that talk about faith and prayer. There are over 2,000 verses in the Bible about money, what it can and cannot do, what money's place is and isn't in our lives, its role in our lives, how we are to use it, how we are to leverage it or not. I mean, if you read through the Gospels, half of the parables, the stories that Jesus used to teach his truth, half of the parables that Jesus taught were about the wise and unwise use of money. Why? Because, one, money was the thing. Money was the greatest competition for our hearts that Jesus faced. It wasn't the Pharisees. It wasn't religion. It wasn't sexuality. It wasn't, it wasn't disease. It wasn't addiction, right? The thing that was the greatest competition that Jesus ever faced for our hearts was money. And Jesus knew that. That's my greatest competition. And Jesus is not cool with the silver medal. And so Jesus, because he knew that, he also knew that money is the most direct route to bring in the fight to the enemies that live in our hearts and the strongholds that they've built and the way that they set up defensive positions around our hearts and our minds and our souls. And here's the thing, money was, and it still is, Jesus' greatest competition for the throne of our hearts, minds, souls, and lives. It's the number one competition, which is why he says this in Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount. The song we sang right before communion comes directly from this. He says this in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. He says, do not store up, right, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves can break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where neither thieves do not break in and steal. And here's it is, don't miss this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then later, just a few verses down, he says this, no one. And what he means by no one is no one. No one can serve two masters. For either he will, not he might, hate one and love the other, or he will, not he might, be devoted to one and despise the other. Jesus says this, you cannot serve both God and money. And it's interesting to me that, that, that the people that, that wrote the Bible, the original translation that they wrote for money is the word mammon, which was the name of a satanic and demonic idol. Like when, they, when they wrote the Bible, it's like money. How do, we, how do we best encapsulate what the love of money, not money itself, money itself is neutral. It's neither good nor bad. But when money finds a place, money finds itself on the throne of our hearts, minds, lives, and souls, What's the best thing we could compare money to when it, when it sits on the throne of our lives? Oh, I know what it is. A satanic and demonic idol. Mammon. You can't, you cannot serve both God and an idol. See, for Jesus, and I want us to understand this. For Jesus, money is not a finance issue. Right? Jesus' ministry was fully funded. Jesus' Jesus's ministry cost money, right? And Jesus' ministry was fully funded specifically by three women that are mentioned in the Bible. And you gotta imagine, like, Jesus is having the conversation with them. Like, we don't see this in Scripture, but I kind of try to, in my brain, connect the dots and, and kind of imagine how this goes. It's like, hey, ladies, listen, 
um, I've got this, uh, this group of 11 guys. One of them's 20. The rest of them are teenagers. Uh, we're going to go on this kind of preaching and teaching tour, and these boys like to eat, right? You imagine, like, they eat, like these are teenage dudes. They like to eat. They needed a place to stay. They needed, they needed opportunities to be able to have food. Like, like every, I, I don't imagine that every single meal Jesus ever did, he took, like, loaves and fishes and multiplied it, right? I think that he could have, but I think he allowed and invited people to support his ministry. We'll talk more about what that looked like next week. But, but here's what I need us to understand today, and that's this. For Jesus, money is a faith issue. It's about who or what we believe in. To trust, right? We trust to take care of us, to, to provide for us. For Jesus, it's a faith issue. It's about who or what we look to other than God and still expect it to act like, be like, and do for us what only God can. It's a faith issue. It's about what we give our lives to and we shape our lives around. That's called faithfulness. What you believe in, you will give your life to. What you have faith in, you will be faithful to. It's a faith issue. For Jesus, it's about the strongholds in our lives that hold us back and stand in the way of us becoming the disciples that Jesus invites us to and expects us to become. Which is why we talked about this verse in, in the last series that we were in. Jesus, when he talks about discipleship, when somebody says, listen, I just need to go back and finish my work at, at, at my house. Like, Jesus, I would love to be your disciple. I just need to get some things done at, at home first. Jesus says this, no one puts their hand to the plow and looks back. The person who puts their hand to the plow to step into discipleship and is still distracted by the stuff that's behind them and looks back at that, takes their eyes off the prize. You can't do this. You can't, be, you can't be my disciple. Why? Because you're still trying to serve two masters. Jesus, I want to follow you, but I, I also, I also want to, I've also got some stuff back here that, that I want to make sure gets done. I mean, it's why Jesus' disciples, when, when Jesus invites them, meets them on the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he looks at them and says, follow me. The Bible tells us that they, in that moment, dropped their nets. Don't, don't miss that. Because those nets that they were, prior to Jesus inviting them to be his disciples, the nets that the Bible shows us or tells us that they were repairing and preparing, they were fixing those nets, preparing to use them, that was their source of income. That was their livelihood. And when Jesus says, follow me, they drop their nets, which means they drop their security blanket to follow Jesus. Eyes on the prize, eyes forward, ever onward, ever forward, no matter what. Now, everybody take a breath, okay? I'm going to wrap up by doing three, three really quick things, right? So, number one, I need to call out some elephants in the room. Number two, I want to explain why we're doing this. And, and number three, I've got a, a couple of challenges for, for all of us and, and a new tool that we're going to use to walk through this together, right? So, first, let's talk about the elephants in the room, right? I know that when we talk about money at church, it brings up things like anger and resentment and shame and sadness and worry and anxiety. How do I know this? Because I feel it too. When we talk about money, I feel that, and I'm, I'm guessing you probably do as well. Now, here's what I know. Christy and I, in our life and in our marriage, we've made some financial mistakes in the past. And we'll talk about this. I'm happy to share these things. We're going to talk about them as we go forward. I'll share this stuff. We've made financial mistakes in the past, and we are literally still paying for those now. I know that the perception exists, right, that, that, that all the church wants is your money, and we don't care about your expenses, we don't care about your debts, and that's also somehow a reflection of how God feels about you, that God wants your money too, and he doesn't really care about your expenses or your debts. And because of that, like your expectation over the next few weeks is, is that adventure and God are somehow going to tag team and, and guilt you into giving away money that you don't even have. Some of us, when you heard me say we're talking about money, you're like, I'll see you at Easter. Others are like, we're out. See you later. Again, let me address the elephant in the room. God doesn't need your money. He's God. If God wanted or needed your money, he would take it from you. Because that's who he is. That's what he could do. The fact is this, church. We need God's blessing in our lives, and he knows that. This is not about what God wants from you. It's about what he wants for you. 
God wants to bless you. And if you read through scripture throughout the entire Bible, what we find is that blessing, God's blessing throughout the entire Bible runs through faith. It does. And here's the truth. Stewardship and generosity are not manipulative measures to fund the church, right? They are, they are training activities that will help us grow and develop faith. This is not, you will never hear me or anyone on this stage or in this church preach a prosperity gospel that says that the blessing you receive is, is, is equal to the, the gift that you give. And if you want God to bless your life and you don't want to get sick and you want to have a lot of money, you better give a lot. That's prosperity gospel. It's not a real gospel. That's not how God works. In fact, here's what God says. Malachi 3, chapter, Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. God says, you know what? Just, just test me. See what happens when you trust me in faith. And he says, this is Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. God says, you want, you want to know what it's like? I want to bless you. You got to trust me. You gotta trust me. And the blessing that God offers does not add up or equal to what you're willing to give. It's all about your faith. If you have faith, that what you're willing to give takes care of itself. And here's the other elephant in the room, right? I know that there have been scandals, right? One after another on how churches spend their money, on how pastors live, on how what pastors drive, the kinds of sneakers. There's an entire Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers. It's all about the, the, like what preachers' shoes cost. Let me just say this, right? I'm gonna be real honest. Because you can look at my life and go, well, Brad, you live out in Oldham County in a house that has, that's on five acres and you have a pool. Brad, you drive a pretty nice truck. And I would say, you're right, those things are true. Here's the truth. The house that I live in now was my parents' house the house I grew up in. And when they moved out, they made a very generous plan that made it possible for a pastor and a high school teacher to be able to afford it. I was able to afford the truck that I drive because I worked my tail off to pay off my previous Jeep. And these shoes, I got them for $45 on sale. So there you go. I say all of this because I want you to know, me too. I understand that there's this, this feeling of, well, I'm not going to give my money to, to the church because I don't know that I can trust the church with it. Here's the thing. We've got a printout, graphs, and spreadsheets, and charts of the last six years of the church budget, including this year's budget, and we will make that available to anyone that wants it. All you have to do is ask. We have nothing to hide. Right? So those are the elephants. You've got to address the elephants in the room. Second, why are we doing this, right? Here's why. Because Jesus has risen. Because Jesus is alive. Because everything that Jesus has said is true. Then as his church, here's why we're doing this. It is now possible for us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to deal with the enemies in our hearts and the strongholds that they have built in our lives so that we can now break through into freedom in Christ. And in doing that, we can now take on the same ethos of the warrior disciple tribe that seeks first the kingdom of heaven while trusting that God will provide all that we need in the process. Church, I'm going I'm to talk more about this. We're doing a kind of a ministry team night, vision night next Sunday evening here in this place. I'm going to talk more about this next week. But here's what I believe. I believe that by us becoming the warrior disciples of Jesus, we will be equipped to step into the spiritual and supernatural fight that is happening around us. That, that what, what hangs in the balance is the soul of humanity. I believe that we'll be equipped to step into that and as a church, we can follow Jesus' charge to kick in the gates of hell and reclaim who and what rightfully belongs to God. That's our job. That's where we're going. This is not a fundraising series. This is setting us up to take the fight to the devil's front door and remind him who the King of Kings and Lord of Lords really is. Last thing, now that you're all happy, I have, two, I have two challenges for you. Challenge number one, 
is for the next five to six weeks, I'm asking everyone in our church to join a life group, right? This isn't a forever commitment, right? This, this, is a, this is a five to six week commitment, which will break down to be somewhere between six and 10 hours of your life over the next month. After service, there's a table right on the other side of this curtain. We're gonna have representatives from our life groups and they're gonna help you get connected. We've actually added an additional second hour life group that will meet after service downstairs right after church. So you have two options to choose from there. And here's my suggestion. If you've never been in a life group at Adventure, start with one of our second hour life groups that meet here right after service. That's challenge number one. Challenge number two, Adventure has partnered with an organization called Good Sense, and they've developed an app that's called Freed Up. And this app is all about helping us become generous stewards of what God has entrusted to us. Us. Now, the reason we chose to partner with GoodSense is because their heart is for discipleship first and foremost, right? They center these conversations, right? The disciplines of, of, of stewardship and generosity, right? That's kind of what they focus on, but this is a discipleship journey first and foremost, not a money journey. We want everybody to be on this. We're going to give you information. There's information in our life groups. We'll also send some information to you today on how to get signed up for this, how to get on this app, how to be a part of this. Here's the deal, there's a cost. There's a cost for doing this. It's $19 a household. Not a person, a household. And what you get is you get lifetime access to an app. You also get a workbook that comes in the real mail, right? You get to open your mailbox, there's something real in there. And there's a reason for the charge, right? And honestly, here's the reason that there's a cost involved. It's because people, when things are free, we tend to treat free things like they're free. We don't really commit. But, but this, 20 bucks, gets some skin in the game, 19 bucks. And here's the thing. If you can't afford that, find me after service, and I will get you set up. You know, we say this all the time. Money is not going to be what stands in the way of you being a disciple of Jesus, right? Quick disclaimer, right, for those of us that maybe have, like, Dave Ramsey PTSD, quick disclaimer, the app does not connect to your bank account. You will not be asked to discuss your financial information in your life group. The opening question in life group today is not, okay, what does everybody make and what's in your bank account right now? That's never gonna get asked. The, the individual work that you'll do, whether it's as a couple or, or as, as an individual, will take about an hour a week. And here's the thing, I know some of us are going, well, I'm not married, or maybe I'm in my teens, or maybe I'm a student, maybe I'm in my 20s, I'm, I'm a college student. I don't really need to do this, right? Yes, you do. And here's why. If Christy and I would have made some different financial decisions in our 20s, man, our 30s would be different. If we would have made some different financial decisions in our 30s, our 40s, there'd be so much more freedom in our lives. And we are committed to this. This is not something that I'm standing on stage going, you do this, we'll be fine, right? No, we're doing it with you. All of our elders, they're doing this. Our staff, they're doing this. Everyone in leadership at this church is doing this alongside of you. The conversations in your life group are gonna center around things like faith and discipleship, but here's the deal. Like Jesus, money is the vehicle that we use to take the fight to the enemies in our hearts that we use to break down the strongholds so that we can be set free to become warrior disciples. Now, last thing and I'm done. Nothing freaks the enemy out more than this. Nothing threatens Satan more than disciples breaking free from the strongholds that keep us, that hold us back from advancing Jesus' kingdom. So here's the thing. I'm just telling you right now, he's going to come at you sideways. Whether that's through your finances, whether it's through your relationships, whether right now you've got the excuses that are just flying through your head of going, I don't have time for this. I don't need a community. I don't want to do this. I'm good. I think I've got it figured out. Let me just say this. For every excuse that pops into your brain, what you need to say back to that excuse is, the reason you're trying to justify me not doing this is every reason I need to do it. So those are my challenges. We're going to take this journey as a church. Do you have to do this? No. No, man, can you imagine what your life would look like, what your marriage would look like, what your family would look like, what, what it would look like at work, what it would look like in this community, in this church, if we broke free from the strongholds that hold us back from becoming the warrior disciples that Jesus desires us to become. That's what we're after. 
started this journey back in January, talking about what it means to be disciples. We're gonna stay on this path. And for us, the step we take now is to, to go to war with those things that are, that are in our hearts that we thought, and I can never get the claws of this out of me. Well, yeah, you can. Jesus says you can. Because Jesus rose from the grave, because you no longer have to fear death. Why be afraid of that? I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna finish. Uh, we're gonna worship together. Uh, if today you, you, want, you need prayer, I'd love to meet you down front. If you wanna talk about what it means to accept Jesus, I'd love to chat with you down front. If you wanna join this church, I'd love to chat with you down front. We can, we can talk about this. If you just wanna spend some time with Jesus and pray at the cross, you can do that as well. But let's stand together. Let's do this. Let's stand up together. I'm just gonna say a prayer over us and then we're gonna worship and, and then we're gonna go to second hour and start this journey together. Jesus, my prayer over adventure today is that your spirit would begin now protecting us. You protect our marriages, you protect our, our families, our relationships, our communities, our schools. Father, that you would begin to, through the power of your spirit, break out, the, the help us to identify these, these strongholds, that we would follow that warrior disciple ethos into our hearts and come face to face with the things that have scared us to death. That we would realize, Jesus, because you rose from the grave, we do not have to fear death. That you do not abandon us or leave us alone, you go with us into the fight. Jesus, I pray for protection from the excuses, all the reasons why we don't wanna do this or can't do this or shouldn't do this. Lord, I pray you would begin to silence those and replace those with, hey, this is the reason why you do need to do this and I'm going with you. We're gonna do this together. Father, I pray that new friendships are born, that new community is born, that we find people that we can do life with in this whole process. Like we see in Acts chapter two, that we break bread together and we pray together and we praise together and we worship together and daily think people are added to this community, those not just to grow our church, but those who are being saved in the name and through the blood of Jesus. Father, I, I pray now that the devil is cowering because he knows we're coming. We're coming for what rightfully belongs to you. Who rightfully belongs to you? Ever onward, ever forward, no matter what. I pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you.